I was trying to put you on the spot. You're gonna no, put, put you on the yeah. spot. Well, I think probably fun. the best that I can say for the for the sake of this podcast is just Yoroshiku onegaishimasu, which is sort of like I hope this goes well. Fingers crossed. Break a leg, etc. It's sort right. of a catch-all. We're gonna we're gonna go that route, I think. Fellas, it's so great to have you. My name, of course, is Zachary Pena. I'm here with my co-host Rob Kaplan. Rob. Great to have you. Great to be here. And it should be the incomparable Zachary. The, oh, I thought you. I thought you were going to say it should be the incomparable Rob Gaffney. No, that's where I thought you were going too. I was going, wow. That would violate my ethos in thirty-seven ways. But thank you. So here's the comparable Russ Kaplan here. The comparable Russ Kaplan. Yeah, I saw some comps on Watchfinder for you. Great. And you are undervalued. Of course, they were of course yeah. listening to Burlingame and Park. This is a topper podcast. We're coming at you from the intersection of Burlingame and Park in lovely Burlingame, California. So happy that fall is finally here. It was like 90 degrees last time we were recording. Nice and cool day. We have in front of us a tray, a tray of G-Shock watches. We're talking all things G-Shock today. But before we get into that, we have some business to attend to. Fellas, there was an Omega watch that just dropped that costs $22,000. Or is it $20,000 and two twenty thousand two hundred? Either way, you, it's a Planet you, Ocean it right that costs a hair over twenty k, and it's made of ceramic and titanium. $22,200. It is. It is two, two, two. Okay. I thought that was strange. Brought um, to you by the number two. <laughs> That's exactly right. I have some very strong feelings about this watch, and... I love it. And I feel like the community's general response to this was one of confusion. And I think you guys both have some very interesting insight to share about sort of the context for this watch. Kind of why does this exist? I mean, I'll sort of share my thoughts as like a, an enth- from an enthusiast standpoint, but I feel like you guys have a better bearing on like why this watch actually, like why Omega actually made this. I think that's right. And I also think that of the three of us, you are by far the best at laying technical foundation. <laughs> so for those listening, the watch is called the Coaxial Master Chronometer GMT Dark Gray. It's the dark gray. And I think that the watch is unique in terms of its materials, both in the movement and the case. Can you describe both the movement and the case for the listeners? This is essentially the gray side of the moon version of the deep black. So it's the 45.5 millimeter ceramic planet ocean with a GMT movement. I happen to own this watch, actually. I have the black version. So the older black, deep black version. What makes this quite special is, of course, this is a machine ceramic case. So it's a dive watch that's... It's a ceramic watch that has 600 meters of water resistance, which in and of itself is already kind of an accomplishment. But... You know, those watches are between sort of 9 and 10, 11, 12K, I think. The original deep blacks were somewhere in that price range. This is 2X that. But what makes this really special, and I feel like you guys guys jumped on this detail almost immediately, is that it's 30 grams lighter than the standard ceramic deep black because Omega is using a new experimental ceramic and the movement itself is made from titanium, which is similar to what we saw in the Aquaterras that came out. The Aquaterra Ultralight, which uh, Omega's Olympians wear. I don't know. There's something about describing it as experimental where it sounds like, well, maybe it's light and maybe it isn't. <laughs> That's but a good point. That's I think good. what they have is a new, well, maybe we could call it a revolutionary new ceramics. It is pretty That's right. unusual. That's right. And That's right. it is apparently as light or lighter than titanium. 
which is pretty wild. It's, At least as light, It's I guess. not quite as light as titanium, but it's, it's, much, it's uh, significantly lighter than the conventional watchmaking ceramics. Well, actually it might be because when we were, we were, before the pod went live, we were talking about the weight of comparable watches. And you mentioned, I think, that the titanium watch in the 43 and a half millimeter on a strap was in the 90s in terms of That's gram right. weight, while this is 105. But this is a much bigger case with a, with a movement yeah, a that point. requires extra thickness. That's a good point. So were this, say, four. 43 millimeter watch that was a yeah. comparable thickness. It, my guess is just looking at the scale and the math, it would probably be in the high 80s if this was if this that, was true yeah. to the comp. Okay. That that might be some good homework actually for me. I feel like I've I feel like I've been down this rabbit hole with other like if you look at the 40, like the Seamaster Diver, there's a ceramic titanium one, and then there's the just the all titanium bond version, but those are also different sizes. So we don't actually have an apples to apples titanium versus ceramic comparison off the top of my head. Either way, it's 30 grams lighter than the deep black, which is not nothing as it stands. It's a silicon nitride ceramic composite, essentially, which is a new type of ceramic that's not been used in watchmaking before. So anytime a new ceramic or any ceramic watch comes out, there's always a prong test that I'm I'm always intrigued by. And that is, does this new material replicate the finish of the steel model? Does it have, and I think we've talked about this on, on when we were talking about the, um, the summer blues, we were talking about how that watch had a dial that was sort of new materials in the way that uh, the watch you have, the the deep black is a new material. And so the, so the first judging question is, are they able to recreate the finish? And obviously this watch just dropped yesterday. Nobody's handled it, but from the photos, it absolutely looks like it does. Yep. Yeah, it has the same kind of brushed, polished facets and edges as we've seen in the other ceramics and in the in the metal versions as well. I think to me, the thing that's most striking about this is this kind of continues a tradition. Some would say that like, so for me personally, my favorite Planet Ocean of all time, of course, is the liquid metal LE. That was another pioneering Planet Ocean that was the first time that Omega used liquid metal, essentially, which was their ceramic alloy kind of melding, which is used in a lot of the bezels now. Shortly after that, I think it was the 80, uh, what, the 8400, 8200 series Planet Ocean, the Gen 2 Planet Ocean. Yeah. The first time they debuted orange ceramic, which was like a pretty big deal for colored ceramics, they did it in a crazy, I think it was a platinum Planet Ocean. I'm not sure if you guys remember seeing that. And we didn't see those orange ceramics rolled out into the regular line until a couple years after that. So I think what we're seeing here is, again, this kind of like proof of concept, crazy experimental piece that's going to be in very short supply. And I think we'll be seeing more of these ceramics in the coming years. So this is... A not insignificant piece that falls in line with these other watches. So something that Omega often will do is they'll take a feature of the lab and they'll put it on a watch and then roll it out in subsequent watches. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a historical example. One of your favorite watches that I've heard you call the most perfectly proportioned Omega that was ever made, (laughs) the 42 millimeter liquid metal Planet Mm -hmm. Ocean. Mm -hmm. So every Omega bezel today that every Planet Ocean on every steel model has has a liquid metal bezel. Mm -hmm. But at the time, all liquid metals were anodized aluminum um, in the 2500 caliber, and they came out with this one version that had a bezel that had basically a liquid metal. I mean, again, Zach, you're better at describing these things than me, but it's basically a shallow, instead of having a plating, it's like a shallow trough Mm -hmm. that is filled with a material that cools and hardens that gives you a greatly enhanced scratch resistance. Mm -hmm. Omega doesn't like switch over product like 100%. 
so they came up at the very tail end of the 2500 before the 8500 was born. They came out with this one model that had liquid metal in the bezel. And that was really something that we see in all planet oceans today. In all planet oceans and in Speedmasters. Yes. And we see it in the precious metal versions as yes. well. Sarah Gold is, right. of course, a gold ceramic alloy. And to your point, scratch proof. Right. Scratch, very highly scratch proof. So in all likelihood, if you are someone looking at this planet ocean and thinking, $22,000, ouch, uh, 17.5 <laughs> millimeters thick, 45 millimeters. But I've been waiting for a ceramic 43 millimeter planet ocean mm-hmm. or a 39 and a half, or dare I say a new planet ocean mm-hmm. that might be some hybrid size. All of these innovations can find their way yep. into all watches. Yep. I agree. And, you know, one of the most successful planet oceans that was launched this year, part of the 70 or the, the anniversary collection was the 39.5. I mean, we've spoken at length about how great that watch wears. And I just feel like when people see these numbers, and to be fair, like this is maybe my most worn watch of this year and maybe last year as well. Like it's, yeah, it's big, but like it doesn't wear any bigger than a Panerai. It's quite a bit lighter because it is ceramic. And this is even lighter than that. I've always felt like, and it's the same thing with the Ploprof, you know, we're kind of beating a dead horse at this point, but like the numbers lie. (laughs) Like the numbers are what they are. You can absolutely take a measurement to them and those are the numbers that you'll get, but it doesn't look or feel that way on the wrist and it doesn't look that way from across the room. So either way, this watch feels like a triumph to me. I would love to see and photograph this in person and kind of compare it to the the deep black that I've been wearing. But, well, uh, hopefully, if you live long enough, you'll be able to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and exactly as far as as far as our, our <laughs> as far as our view of it and how popular it will be amongst Topper, are we excited to have it in the boutique for people to see? Absolutely, a hundred percent. Hell yeah! I think that this is a truly innovative piece. Yeah, and you know. Before and, we start, and there this, are a lot of people that do love watches of this size. And as a standalone watch, it will be successful. Yeah. You know, before we started this, Rob, you were saying something which actually really kind of made sense to me. One of those rare opportunities, <laughs> moments when you made sense. Anyways, <laughs> and what you were talking about is what it is that Omega, when they bring out new product and the sort of categorization of what's new and interesting. And this does fall into a particular category innovation in material, or sometimes it's innovation in the movement as opposed to some sort of a bigger line change where they've dramatically changed a group, or even not dramatically changed, evolved a group mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, watches. Mm-hmm. They really haven't done it. And so, anyways. I completely agree. I mean, I think the punchline to all this is you have three fans of this watch, but also three fans of sort of Omega's modus operandi when it comes to rolling out new tech and expanding the lines and continuing, continually pushing sort of the boundaries of the materials. And I like Easy for you to say. I know. Easy for me to say. <laughs> Very good stuff. While we're sort of on the subject of size, you know, between 45 and 43 millimeters, et cetera, another brand, these also just landed in, in the store. This is only a one millimeter difference, but yeah. Bell & Ross has rolled out a new size for the square case. It is only one millimeter, and when you hold them next to each other, the difference is almost imperceptible, but on the wrist. So, Mr. Foundation Layer, can you describe which watch you're describing? That's right. right. Is it perhaps the BRO392? So, Bell & Ross, uh, the BRO3 is kind of their signature square instrument dial pilot watch, essentially. And for many years... It's their most famous design that is ripped from the stylings of a Broussard cockpit, a a 50s French (laughs) aviation plane. So, if you look at a Broussard cockpit... Near the latitude and the, I, I don't know anything about cockpits, no, but that's exactly right. Um, but the stylistic influence. So it is the signature Bell and Ross. Like if you yep. think Bell and Ross and you look in the dictionary, you see a picture of the BRO three ninety two. Yep. 
There are a number of watches that sort of borrow this aesthetic. The Seiko Spork is this kind of classic. Mm-hmm. Seiko has a few kind of pilot watches from back in the day. Zen, of course, has its own series of kind of instrumental watches that also borrow this 12369. I feel like Bell & Ross has kind of made it really their own with the square case. It actually looks like it should be screwed into an instrument panel. Anyway, so this aesthetic for many years, I believe when Bell & Ross pioneered it, it was 44? 46. 40, it was 46. Okay, yeah. it was quite large. And this is probably the, the aughts, the mid-aughts. <laughs> the noughties. <laughs> the early aughts. 46. Okay, Jesus, it's even bigger than I remember. giant watches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were wearing a lot of big watches then. From the music and man. I was like, Gary, Indiana, class aught four. But that was a different century. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> They have been slowly reducing the size of these down to 44, 43. The one I have in my hand, which I believe is to the uh, anniversary for the French aerobatics Mm -hmm. squadron. Quite a beautiful piece. I believe this is 42 millimeters. That's correct. This is from the last several years. They've been 42. And 42 is quite wearable, quite honestly. But they've lost another millimeter off this dial or off this case shape. And weirdly... This is kind of the perfect size for it, maybe. I mean, maybe, again, you know, I don't mind wearing a larger watch, but actually this aesthetic has always worn quite large because it is a square. Do you like the aesthetic of that watch? I actually think this is awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listener, Russ is razzing me because this watch looks like it would it be looks worn like by it was a fighter pilot or a forest ranger or someone who or only Zach. dresses <laughs> in, in olive it dress. maybe green. has some green on it. Yeah, that's right. Olive I know this is the only green, uh, two green watches on this tray. So, um, um, very cool. And Russ, I remember when you saw this at uh, Watches and Wonders, yep. this was kind of the watch that jumped off the table for you. Yeah. Has uh, so raised in, our markers. Very cool. So in ter- in terms of size, a millimeter difference really sounds like it's splitting hairs. And we would put them next to each other, and there's uh, literally a half a millimeter further out, half a millimeter on each side. Yep. So you might think, what difference could that possibly make? But remember, I think the size differences are even bigger on square watches than round watches. For those of you who are fans of sophomore geometry or freshman geometry, if you're advanced, you can draw a circle inside a square. So a circle just has a lot less surface area than a square. So one millimeter, I think, in this instance, does make a big difference. And I think a lot of people that have wanted this aesthetic but haven't been able to pull it off might find themselves just inside the edge of the margins now. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the watch space, you know, when you're splitting hairs between 39 millimeters and 40 or 40.5 and 41, these are not inconsequential numbers just because a lot of what we're dealing with here is also like optical illusions where the physicality of the measurements might not seem like much, but then, you know, when you reduce the size of the bezel, for example, and increase the dial aperture, that makes a watch look or wear larger, even though it could actually be smaller. So there's all these interesting little tricks. And I feel like, again, going back to the Planet Ocean, that 17 millimeter thick, 45 millimeters across has a wide bezel, but the bezel is kind of shrunken, or excuse me, it's within sort of the case proportions as well. And then it has a deep chapter ring, and then the dial starts. And so it actually has a relatively small dial opening, a relatively small dial aperture relative to the case size. And we see a lot of that in Bell and Ross as well. So they've reduced it by a millimeter, but they've also made some other edits to sort of the bezel and the dial itself that I feel like helped just make it look and wear a lot smaller. So visually speaking, I think a lot of people are going to be really excited about this. I just love this for this color, quite honestly. <laughs> I'd be fine with the 41 or the 42, but either way, very cool piece. Rob, thanks for calling that out earlier. There was one other new arrival to the store that I wanted to talk about today specifically and going back to foreign language. You guys know my last name, right? I believe it starts with a P. It does, yeah, that's great. There's an accent, I believe. My last name is Pina. There's a little tilde. Anyway, my father is from uh, the Dominican Republic. My mother's from Detroit. 
I don't speak Spanish. I've never spoken Spanish well. I lived in Japan, ironically. My last name was Pina. When this watch was announced, I kind of took to it right away because actually Pina is pineapple in Spanish. And I never heard the end of that in high school and in grade school. It was mostly in grade school. That was a nickname that I didn't love, but now it's it's been kind of endearing. And there's sort of pineapples all over my wife and I's home and my family home growing up. And even when we got married in San Rafael, we were kind of looking at locations to have the wedding party and everything. And the house that we ended up settling on, we like took a step back and realized that all of the wallpaper was pineapples. And we're like, okay, we found our place. Like, so it's been this enduring kind of symbol. I had no idea of this pineapple. relationship with you and pineapples. <laughs> this creates really an endless series of gifting opportunities. For there me. is. So yeah. When I've, people I've, are going to say like, <laughs> Zach is such an amazing moderator. He'd really pulls all the threads together. I would like, love a pineapple t-shirt. Like, I'm like, oh my God, you mean our pineapple? Yeah, he's Our good. pineapple, exactly. <laughs> so I kind of grew up with the nickname that I maybe loved or didn't love for that matter. But as I got older, I realized that pineapple is this kind of, it is, it's a symbol of prosperity and hospitality and it has much deeper meaning throughout the Caribbean. So it is kind of quite cool. And so I've maybe co-opted pieces of that as I've gotten older. But anyway, this and, particular... And Hawaii. I mean, it's... And yeah. Hawaii. And Hawaii. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Polynesia as well. All over. Anyway, so this Zodiac that showed up this week is a collaboration between Zodiac and our mutual friend, Ariel Adams, at a blog to watch. And he's always... Not he's all. He's kind of known for his out-of-the-box ideas. And when I heard that this was coming, I was like, huh? But seeing this in person, this is actually extremely cool. There's a beautiful gradient green dial. The hour markers are all sort of vaguely pineapple shaped. There's a pineapple counterweight on the seconds hand. For being something that has all of this like symbolism in it, it was it's really beautifully done. Come on. It is. So I've already told my wife if she loves me that this will be my Christmas gift this year. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if that pans out. Anyway, I do really love this and just shout out to Ariel. Really nice work on this. And this is great, a follow-up. Great job, Ariel. This is a follow-up to the Aquamarine. The dream, Aquamarine Dream. Which was what? It was like a blue. It's like a turquoise. Kind of it was teal-y. kind of based more on... teal than turquoise. Okay. Okay. And that also did quite well. That was that was a very popular watch. Yeah. I mean, again, I love green, but the way that this gradient has been rendered, um, I was really, really pleasantly surprised at how well it was done. So, slice of the good life. Very cool stuff. Why don't we do a quick wrist check, and then we'll kind of dive into the main topic for today. Rob, what are you What are you wearing? Oh, it's not running. <laughs> oh, no. So, uh... <laughs> Could you play, take a brief moment to expound on solar-powered watch that have never seen the sun recently? Well, they work. <laughs> So if a G-Shock has been sitting in the safe, that is perhaps one of your incredibly cherished possessions, but not so much a daily wear because, of, you know, in this case, it's kind of a rare piece. You'll get a charge light for a couple hours until it, and you have to put it under a lamp until it rehabilitates itself. So, the podcast right, starts. so right before the podcast, I, I pulled this watch um, out of the safe. Um, Listener, Rob was running around the store holding this up above his head yeah i'm under like the holding it to the lights i'm like come on <laughs> it's sort of like when it actually does turn on it's sort of like this magic moment of it's the true watched pot you what never really watch? know this is a full metal g-shock it is the mr porter edition that was actually part of our opening order when we added g-shock i have a friend of mine who's uh, i think cowboy bebop on Watch You Seek, when we added G-Shock, and I don't remember the exact year, I think it was about 2018. I'm pretty sure, actually, because the 35th anniversary was happening as we added G-Shock. And so we added it a few months before the full metal, the classic shape came out. I actually asked for his help in terms of what would be good watches to get. And Porter editions are hot, full metals are hot, and this was the first 
all black positive display G-Shock you could get. The year after it came out with a steel negative display. And they've come out with other black dial watches since then. But this watch is special to me for a couple of reasons. When my son played basketball, this is the watch I always wore when I coached. And I love the tactile feel of, of using the stopwatch on this watch. I actually used the stopwatch. This is an insanely cool watch. And I love the finish detail on it. And I loved that it, to me, signified the beginning of our chapter with G-Shock. And a chapter that has taken me to Japan, that has brought Kiko uh, eBay into our store once already, soon to be twice, mm-hmm. and really helped us provide an experience for a lot of people over the years that they've been very passionate about. Mm-hmm. I remember, Besides, uh, Russ, when, how it, did you feel? when it, we just- it, it, this, this is also, I was waiting for this. This gave Rob the, maybe it's an unusual opportunity to tell me I told you so a hundred times when it came to G-Shock. Yeah, I had wanted to add G-Shock for a long time. And I think I just, and Russ was just concerned that it would be popular with our audience. And I was like, no, it has every element. It's produced at the highest level. It has additions that are special and hard to get that we'll be able to give people access to. It has a beautiful modern history with a charismatic founder. Mm -hmm. It has every element yeah. And we'll, we'll touch not, on that. Not to m- mention, by the way, what the heck do I know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll touch on that in a few moments, but I feel like something that G-Shock gets credit for is the toughness of the watches. But something G-Shock does not get as much credit for is the finishing of their watches. And when you move into the higher end pieces throughout the line, and we'll kind of touch on this later in the pod, but like you start to see finishing techniques that you see at like Grand Seiko level and much higher as well. There's a ton to explore. I, listener, just to back up real quick, this watch that Rob is wearing is a collab between G-Shock and Porter Yoshida, which is a kind of a high-end luggage company. It's based in Tokyo, and they make beautiful stuff. I used to have numerous Porter bags. Beautiful stuff. So it's very cool to see this collab. This is the original G-Shock colors as well, right? The black. I mean, it would have been a resin case, obviously, with the red frame and the blue lettering. So super, super cool piece. Yeah, um, please don't throw it off. I love that you have that. I also love that, story. I love that it's dead, though. And I, um, <laughs> you know, last winter we got a lot of Just rain. Just resuscitation. This is like a Princess Bride thing. There's a big difference between almost dead and dead. <laughs> yeah. it's This watch is just mostly dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's an important distinction. Last winter when we didn't see, the, it, didn't, it seemed like we didn't see the sun for many days or weeks on end. Perhaps our Portland or Seattle Pacific Northwest listeners can enlighten us on how to keep a G-Shock charged during the wintertime. You may well, need to get I a UV light or something in the safe. keep it charged. <laughs> Don't leave it in the safe. I mean, I, friend of the pod, our buddy uh, Luke, who lives down in right. Santa Cruz, he's a pretty prolific G-Shock collector. He said, he was like, yeah, I just pop my, he keeps his G-Shocks in a box or case or whatever. He was like, he just pops it open. He just opens the case and puts it next to a window on a sunny day to charge them all up yeah. at the same time. I try to take them out on bike rides and I sort of rotate them through bike rides, but you need a sunny day for that. Yeah, you need a sunny day. <laughs> and you need to think of it earlier yeah, than five minutes and before speaking, you start recording. Speaking from experience, I know it takes a few minutes of a pretty significant <laughs> a light, significant light yeah. to get it to power back on. Yeah. Russ, what do you have with you today? The one I wear on bike rides. Um, oh, I love this. This is an MTG. It's yeah, an analog no, digital. It's a G Steel. It's oh, a G-steel. carbon bezel G Steel. Which is, you know what? I just like this watch. It's a classic, nice looking. It's not on the particularly high end side of the line. 
but it's great looking. Blue is a good color on you as well. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Yeah. I love the analog G-Shocks as well. There's kind of two schools of thought. The square-cased purist look, and then there's these more, these interesting like experimental pieces with analog movements, which also have all the same sort of toughness, and they're subjected to all the same testing protocols that the digital ones are. So this is quite an accomplishment to get an automatic movement that can withstand the punishment. Or excuse me, not automatic. It's uh, not automatic. It's definitely it is not solar. However, it is mine solar, has though. seen the sun more And it is running. Yes, sir. I am wearing another square case which, version. Which, by the way, not to digress, one mm. of my favorite things about the analog version of the solar watch is I don't wear it all the time, mostly because I'm not riding as much as I should be. And when I pull it out of the drawer, I like the fact that it, it goes to sleep when it sits in the dark. Oh, right. And when it springs to life and finds the time, I always And the hands kind of yeah, zip kind around of the dial to where it's, that's, yeah. that's, that's super cool. That is actually very satisfying. I noticed the MTGs and the MRGs that we pulled aside to talk about this podcast. Some of them did that as they were awoken from their slumber in the safe. With me, another square-cased full metal. This is one of the titanium versions that came out. Virtual Armor. <laughs> virtual Armor 2. I don't remember the name of this watch. It is the, set, is the camo Virtual Armor. I'm going to roll that back. Yep. Yeah, it's embarrassing. So I am wearing another full metal version of a square-cased variant. This is the Virtual Armor in titanium. This is this kind of like crazy camo. The second edition of the Virtual That's Armor. The first correct. one had an austere black color scheme. That's correct. You know, I love all things camo and titanium, and I feel like this hit all of the notches for me. I also really love Metal Gear Solid. I definitely spent way too much time playing all of the Metal Gear games back in the day. Can you say, Snake? <laughs> yeah, Snake! Oh, yeah. <laughs> When your character dies. Oh, yeah. And I think they're, they're actually doing like a remastered uh, like collector's edition with the, all the earliest ones that's coming out. Fighting the urge to get a PS5. But virtual armor, love this watch, love titanium and camouflage. I prefer the negative displays, even though they're technically harder to read. The negative display, of course, is the black display. I'm, I'm positive. I disagree. Rob is positive. <laughs> Team positive. Team negative. Me too. Yeah, there's something super, super cool about these titanium watches. And I also particularly love the virtual armor editions, which instead of having like the faux rivets on the side of the bracelet, it's actually just fully drilled out. So they're a few hairs lighter. Um, anyway, I do like this watch quite a lot. We pulled out several different pieces from the G-Shock collection to kind of cover the gamut of what G-Shock offers. There are essentially five collections, six collections, and they tend to span kind of different price points and finishing ratios, essentially. And so the base models tend to be the resin cases, resin straps, snap-on or screw-back case backs. Everything is pretty simple and lightweight. And these tend to be, you know, anywhere from $100 to $200. But I feel like, and again, everybody should have one of those watches. It's sort of just the perfect grab and go. But I feel like G-Shock starts to get really interesting in like the $500-ish dollar price point where you start to see made in Japan editions. You see fully like screw down case backs, traditional to, you know, high-end watchmaking, which is what you, that Rob, your Porter edition has that. I think my virtual armor has it as well. For sure, yours does. Russ, not so much. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but this, you know, by the way, is the dead opposite of usually. He always accuses me of having bougie taste on whatever I've got on. So, ha. He does. That's true. Russ is very against character for you. I love it. So, I feel like G Shock really started to explode, though, right around when this Porter edition came out, because that was the advent of the full medals. And people had been waiting for G Shock to do a full metal bracelet. And for as kind of ubiquitous and common as they are now, the full metal is actually quite new still. Yeah, if you look at old. like G-Shock is 40 years old, they're celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. The full metal bracelet is very new, but it feels as though this watch was made to have a metal bracelet. 
like the metal bracelets are kind of perfect, I think. You know, we have a very cool, it has this cool kind of weighted feel to it. These recrystallized metal versions. And again, going back to what I was saying about G-Shock's finishing being interesting. These have this crazy sort of blasted, IP coated and then re-blasted, I think. It's like a multi-level process to give it this crazy like aged crystallized appearance. But this is still just like the standard $500 full metal edition. And by the way, just because we talked about him earlier in the day, I feel like, and I don't know this for any particular reason, that's a watch that Ariel Adams would love. <laughs> Shout out front of the pot, Ariel Adams. I, you know, I couldn't agree more, actually. He um, would love I should, that. I should text him a photo of this. He would like that. He'd like to hear that he's being mentioned. Yes. <laughs> Twice. Twice. Uh, the other aspect, Ariel, I'm coming for that royal there, there, royalty there, there, there shall be no more Ariel in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other thing that I think is really important to mention about the modern G-Shock is that it's really fun to play with them on your phone. So pretty much at this point, if you're talking $150 Casio or higher, these things are all Bluetooth devices. And you can do things like set the timer, set the alarms, change the time zones, change the second time zones. On Russ's watch, which has a little, it's like two displays. There's a world time display at six o'clock and a main display. You can toggle between them. So were he to wear that watch traveling to Tokyo and he was to set the little time at, you know, Tokyo and the big time locally when he lands, he could just with a button on his phone, he could just flip it. Playing with it on your phone is really fun. It is really the only brand we sell that's like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, shout out to Oceanus, which is, a you know, it's sister (laughs) brand. But there's an added layer of functionality with the new Frogmans as well, which Mm -hmm. also have that Bluetooth capability. But because the Frogman is a dive watch, there's an added layer of it's a dive computer, essentially. And so you can get memory and GPS location and a few other pretty interesting features if you tap in with your dive watch on the G-Shock app with the with the Frogmans. Also, also super cool. I actually have the app and you can save multiple watches to the same app. And so you can kind of just look at what you're wearing on your wrist and then, you know, you hop off the plane, tap the uh, location adjustment. Although, again, the radio time sync works automatically. So it may not work the moment that you step off the plane, but it is quite cool that like, you know, by the time you get through customs or, you know, you're in your Uber, it may have already synchronized to the local time which is another super, super cool. I mean, G-Shock has been using this movement module. So it's solar, it's radio, and it's Bluetooth now. By the way, if it waits, it's not because it's thinking about it. It just doesn't <laughs> get the signal yet. So if you're inside a building, it may or may not get the satellite signal. That's exactly That's right. That's exactly right. And it's crazy to see, like, it'll adjust for daylight savings automatically, too, mm-hmm. if you keep it out on the dresser overnight by the time you wake up in the morning. By the time you've overslept when daylight savings happens, your watch will be still correct. Yeah, very cool mix of technology. And again, in the night, back. is it sort of like a tree in the forest? Which is yeah. just faster, your Alexa <laughs> or your watch? That's actually a very good question. Very good question. I've long been, you know, Rob, to your point about kind of playing with these on your phone. You know, they're also very highly collectible, mix and matchable, kind of grab and goable. There's, there's a lot to G-Shock that is really, really fun. I wanted to touch on, Ross, I'm not sure if you've been to Japan. Rob, I've heard multiple stories from you about you having gone to the production line where the higher-end G-Shocks are made at the Yamagata factory. Right. So around around 2020, I went on a mix retailer press trip with about 10 other people and got to see that factory. I think that's where I met Josh Shanks when he was with Watchanista. Shout out for friend the of the first pod, time. Josh Shanks. What's up, Josh Shanks? Who's <laughs> <laughs> now a, sell a, a, a friend se- at Oris? Yeah, <laughs> I'll sell a Diver 65 Chrono for you, which uh, <laughs> is another watch that probably deserved to be brought up on this pod. But it was like, I can't say enough about how much fun 
going to Japan is just in general, just the architectural, the streetscapes, the bullet trains, just the feeling, the cleanliness, the energy of, of it just feels incredibly good just being in Japan, mm-hmm. just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But that factory in Yamagata had the clean room of clean rooms. And I have a photo that we can probably get in the sh- get to you for the show notes of my wife and I w- wearing our full like hazmat outfits. Mm-hmm. To, to the go booties in, and everything, yeah, I remember this. To go into the clean room. And so people talk about the premium line. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about a premium line, you're like, Okay, is it like a metaphorical line? Does it mean like it's like a room? Mm-hmm. Or By line, it, we're talking production line. Production right? line. And it actually is a production line. So the way they have that factory where most of the production happens on their higher end pieces, it's like a big room that has several lines that are like, I don't know, 50 meters long. And closest to the glass, if you are not wearing your clean suit, I think it was either number 14 or number 16, but I think they stopped calling it a number and I think they now just refer to it as the the premium line. Mm -hmm. But there is one line Mm -hmm. that is a premium line. And the way I would describe is it is machine after machine after machine, maybe six or seven machines in a row, and then a spot for the work to stack up and for a human to check the work of the robots and, I think and then to forward it to the just next Just to contextualize one. the line a little bit, I think it's important to say, again, I, we kind of glossed over this a few moments ago, but there are levels to G-Shock. There's the entry right. level stuff, the hundred-ish dollars, and then around $500, you start to get the features that we were talking about, right. the solar, the Bluetooth, the radio tech. But when you get further up, like past 1500 to mm-hmm. 2000 you know, kind of up in that realm you start to touch the MTG mm-hmm. line. Right. And then beyond that, at about $3,000, we see MRG, which right. is the premium stuff that's coming off this line that you're talking about. And here's where we see really interesting finishings, really, really experimental technologies and alloys and various mm-hmm. things like cobalt bezels, these right. kinds of things, crazy, crazy tech. And at the, at the highest end of MTG, you see incredible hand finishing, like artisan level stuff that you would see coming out of high end watchmakers. MRG, in you mean? Switzerland. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, MRG. Yeah, exactly. So in this room, there is one line where at the time when I was there, again, 2020 or 2019, probably. I think it was right before. It was probably 2019. I remember my daughter was with us, and but only in, in my wife's belly. Um, <laughs> so actually, she was born in 18. So it must have been 18. 18 or 19, can't remember, doesn't matter. But every MTG, Oceanus, and MRG comes off of that one line. And this is all about proper assembly of the components. Mm-hmm. So things like the cobalt finishing that you're describing, or the a hot- Kabarian. Kabarian, Kabarian I'm sorry. Yeah, so like me. the application of materials, yep. that would have all been done in other places. Yep. So this room was about the assembly of all of the finished components. But watching it was amazing. So it's like eight machines, robot, more robots, and they get to the finished product. So then they had another room, and each watch would be handled by an inspector. And the inspectors, they had like special stripes on their uniform. They were like the highest ranking, most experienced people there. And I remember they would just, each watch, just put it through check after check after check after check. And... They had like a really interesting like seniority system where everybody there was like a different rank and had a different Mm -hmm. job Mm -hmm. and was allowed different access in the company based on their performance. And the level, you know, we've talked about to polish a screw 
like a singular task, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. almost meditative balance, you'd have mm -hmm. to do it. So this is like another aspect because these people weren't doing a singular task. They were taking one watch and going through like a 50 step sequence and, or maybe it was 70 or 30, mm -hmm. but just watching it step after mm -hmm. step after step of tilting and checking mm -hmm. for different things. And that also must require just a meditative balance mm -hmm. to be able to do and the level of times we get a G-Shock and somebody's like, you know, seven o'clock, mm -hmm. look at the finish. Mm -hmm. It's not really mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. on the corner. I mean, that never happens. No. No. So they have on these high-end pieces, they have a finishing process and a QA system that is just second to none. Yeah. And perfection is the aim. I think that's kind of evident. So I, for the longest time, you know, ever since the MRG line, so again, the, the highest end G-Shock line became a thing and started to expand and grow. At the time, G-Shock already had the full metal line, which is, again, the integrated bracelet, the standard square case. And everybody was wondering, when are they going to do an MRG, a square-cased MRG? Essentially, when are they going to give the highest-end hand-finished treatment to the, you know, kind of the iconic square-cased digital LCD design? And they did it finally last year. And this is maybe one of my favorite G-Shocks of all time. It's cast entirely in titanium. At a glance, it looks like the $500 mm -hmm. full metal version, which is kind of equal parts like ridiculous, but also it's the kind of stuff that like true kind of watch aficionados love where something at a glance doesn't look special, but then it's, it's the quiet luxury thing. The quiet luxury. That's exactly it. And Rob, you mentioned screws, you know, going back to, uh, you know, folks that were attending to things on the MRG line at a level of detail that you wouldn't see in like a full automation. And one thing that makes this particular edition really, really cool is that, so listener, I mentioned a few moments ago that on the titanium version that I'm wearing, there are rivets on the bracelet that are essentially drilled out. And you can see them on the full metal version as well. The edge of the whole bracelet has these kind of little divots in them or dimples, I guess is one way to describe it. The dimples on the MRG version are actually screws and they're all individually finished and they're all individually. And then there's a blue, there's a full blackout version of this watch as well. The screws are all individually heat blued and then set into the watch itself. It gives this interesting contrast of hand and machine finishing and assembly that rivals. I mean, I think the MRG G-Shock, the square case version is like Casio's Royal Oak. I mean, it has that sort of same feel and finish to the bracelet. It's obviously not a Royal Oak bracelet, but that I think is kind of what they're going for with this. And so, you know, when you look at just the absolute pinnacle of something that G-Shock is doing, that to me is exemplary of it, but nothing about that watch is shouty at all. It just looks like a basic. So I, I love that. So Rob said something that reminded me of something that in this much is really true. When you think about all the different watch lines that we carry, and it kind of ties together in a strange way, G-Shock, and Omega. One of the things I love about either of those product lines is when you pick them up, they work and they work every time. Mm -hmm. It's very, very rare to have anything ever go wrong with either. And that is really something. And it's, wish we could say that about absolutely everything. I've literally never had to warranty a G-Shock. There's one more detail about that trip to that line that I really hadn't thought about in a little while, but now that I, but as I think about it now, I think it's kind of interesting. So when I was looking at the high-end premium line and I was looking at the watches coming off of it, 
Well, there were three things. There was MRG. You know, you just talked about that, though at that time, the full metal MRG didn't exist. There was MTG, the sort of premium yet more budget-focused line, and there was Oceanus. And I had never really looked at Oceanus before. I had seen people bring them, you know, in trades. And I've always said, interesting uh, <laughs> potential future lines are, you know, if, if people are bringing them in that like our watches and they're trading them in, that's always a good sign of we might do well. And so yeah. I basically talked to them and I said, if there's ever the chance, I would like to be one of the pilot dealers for Oceanus, which is totally different because when you think of G-Shock, you think of rugged, tough, all of the tests. Mm -hmm. So Oceanus is about taking the know-how, but applying it to thinness and sleekness. Mm -hmm. It's as close to like a jewelry like bracelet wearing experience. Right. The I mean, it's maybe the, the most comfortable. Yeah, bracelet the bracelet is designed ever. after the spine of a manta. So almost nothing says jewelry like the spine of a manta, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, so if, mimicry, yeah, baby. if you look at the links and you and you think about a manta, a manta you're manta. on the right, you're on the right exactly. track. But that's funny. I actually didn't. I, that watch line is called Manta. I actually did yeah, not know. But that if you actually look at the bracelet, there's like a double a double raised yeah, link yeah, no, that, is, that is. is like a manta spine. Yeah, yeah there absolutely is. Yeah, it's sometimes. You know, it goes back to my, Nicholas always says it fears, like how on the nose do you want to be on design? Yep. Do you want it just to be thought of? And anyway, there are raised elements like the spine, but anyway, so we were able to do that. And mm -hmm. so ultimately yep. I think Oceanus, I think it sold in like half a dozen places mm -hmm. in the U S but. Um, and for a while it was kind of like the watch nerds, like JDM secret. Exactly. And you could only buy them. You could only import right. them or you had to buy them. Directly. So, so, so anyway, cool every, every time we see some, somebody, buy one i always think about yay we provided access to something yeah. and maybe we had a little to do with that those are super so. cool pieces i love that g-shock has morphed into i mean again when you go back to like the legendary toughness it's this crazy shock resistant watch that was the original test to ensure its durability was founder and inventor of the watch kiko ebay threw one out a window Wrapped it in rubber or something? Did you ever? Did you see the original? Because I feel like there's a G-Shock museum. They had. Where they a, have the original prototype. It's like they, wrapped they, in rubber they bands had or something. It, they had it on the tour. They had a series of right. display cases right. with the historical right. like prototypes. And I can't remember the extent that it was tape or a right, ball right, right. or it was a combination but of it's, tape it's and amazing. a ball. It's amazing. But a, yes, that is what he did. And he that threw has, it off and it's window. morphed. So like the lower end G-Shocks have you know a, a cage of some sort to protect the movement, but the higher end ones actually have what's called alpha gel, like literally mm -hmm. these state-of-the-art gelatinous pillows mm -hmm. that cradle the movement inside the case. Truly like state-of-the-art stuff they that had you would a, never notice from They had a, a gel egg drop. Oh, there you go. When we were there. So we took eggs and we dropped them from like three or four feet onto the alpha gel. Like a chicken's egg. Yeah. Onto the a alpha gel. A literal chicken's egg. <laughs> If you don't specify egg, I guess the default egg <laughs> An is chicken's ostrich egg. egg and yeah. you dropped it. It was from not a. It was not window. a quail egg for unagi. <laughs> it was a chicken egg. And chicken so, <laughs> I think I've seen videos of the egg. Yeah. So I and I did the egg drop. I love and that. no egg was harmed in the dropping on the gel. I love that. But shock resistant. It's in the name. It does what it says on the tin. They're all also very highly water resistant. Two hundred meters is sort of the standard for a G shock. I feel like there were four or five tests. One was timekeeping autonomy for a certain amount of time. So now that's held in place through solar, unless it's Rob's Mr. Porter edition, which lives in the same, in which case it fails that test. Uh, shock resistance, water resistance, autonomy, and then uh, dust, I think, dust or mud resistance, mud resistance was another one. So that means 
you know, small particulate can't work its way into the case via the pushers or anything. So yeah, it's those four and they tests. had they had a repetitive button test too. Oh yeah, I've they seen had this a as test well. where they had a machine that and there's would, like an electrostatic like, uh, like test. It would press the buttons thousands yeah, yeah, of yeah, times yeah, yeah. just to make sure that it would still function after thousands of presses. It's truly amazing stuff. And the original vision from Mr. eBay was to create a watch that was not so much indestructible but could withstand anything. So yeah, I guess indestructible. And Mr. eBay is actually going to be here in Burlingame. On November 11th. He's coming back. Yes. He is. I cannot be more excited for this. I'm, he, yes. This is the second time he's been to Berlin Game. The first time, I keep hearing stories about it. It was pandemonium. Yeah. <laughs> Russ, it can was... you describe? We used, our store, when we moved a year ago, went from a smaller store to a bigger store. And in the smaller store, we had so many people that wanted to come that we had to break it into two sessions with wristbands, which was something. And it happened to be on the day when there was this sort of apocalyptic looking day with these fires in Northern California and the smoke had blown over us and the whole day turned orange outside and people had to turn on their headlights at 11 o'clock in the morning. It was, was just like, the weirdest day One of the craziest ever. days ne- ever. My whole life never seen anything like that before. <laughs> Anyways. But Mr. eBay was here for correct. that. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So the only point was despite all that it was still a huge big event so we're excited about having him here without that this time. Very excited to yeah. have him. So okay. it won't look like the filter of like Breaking Bad Mexico yeah. when he's here <laughs> next time. <laughs> That's what it actually exactly. I think kind of looks like. the story. Hopefully we've not cursed our event. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Well I'm very excited to meet him. I haven't met him before. G-Shock of course is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year and they're kind of rolling out the red carpet for the man who brought it all to life. I'm very curious to see what he's what he like. What's the Kiko eBay watch like? What's the what does he wear? What's, th- we got a wrist check. I think I remember him wearing one of the historical watches from like the, the 80s, OG DWs, like one of the originals. Yeah. Okay, that kind of thing too. Okay, I mean that's pretty. That, on, I think that's, that's pretty what on he had brand last for him. Time. I am also, and I know, you know he only wears square watches. Like I don't oh, think you'll purist. I, I don't think you would ever see him in like a modern Casio, and you wouldn't see him in a Frogman because mm-hmm. he associates himself with that original shape. And so I also associate myself with the founder of the G-Shock Square Case. There's <laughs> definitely there's definitely camps. You know, just as much as there are levels to G-Shock, there are camps as well between right. round and square case, analog versus digital, reverse you know, versus positive, reverse versus positive display. That's we'll settle. Right. We'll settle Resin that in versus the parking metal. lot later. Sorry. Yeah, we should probably do a little speed round with him to see sort of what his preferences for all of those are. But I, I'm guessing I can probably... He's probably square case, positive, display, resin. What else is there? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the long and short of it. Yeah, until you're getting into you I know, mean, the in, luxury end. And speaking of the luxury end, in 40 years, we have kind of on the table in front of us spans the full collection from the most basic stuff to the highest end stuff. Everything on this table has passed the same rudimentary tests, the hammer tests, the shock tests that we were talking about, time autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like there are still distant horizons for G-Shock that I'm very curious to see where the brand goes next. Everybody, of course, would love to see G-Shock do an automatic movement. I don't know if that's possible given the, the battery of tests that... There's always the question of, can a smartwatch be able to pass all of the G-Shock tests yep. and have enough battery life to still be a G-Shock? Yep. That, and you've seen them dance around the edges. There have been um, G-Shock watches, that yep. text. Um, yep. I had one of those. Yeah. A product that, in my opinion, needs a little bit of progression mm-hmm. to be a frontline best-of-breed mm-hmm. watch that isn't just a G-Shock watch that you know we're getting because we love G-Shock yep. and we want the feeling of supporting yep. G-Shock, which a lot of people do. Incredible but, loyalty yeah. among G-Shock collectors. And to your point about kind of bleeding edge products that maybe didn't take off the way they should have, like 
the ra- there was a digital range band, which was essentially a solar GPS before anybody was mm-hmm. doing wearable solar GPS watches in the field. And I feel like because it wasn't a Sunto or a Garmin, it was also quite large. Yeah. <laughs> Russ is like, it was visible from space. Yeah. It was quite large, to be fair. But it didn't quite take off in the way that, you know, we've seen those other makers. But I feel like if Sunto or Garmin had made it, it would have, the outdoor industry would have lost its marbles. But it was a G-Shock. And so it was just, it was maybe put in a box that it didn't deserve to be put in, I think. Because that was actually really quite a groundbreaking What are you saying about our cases? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Nobody puts G-Shock in the Nobody box. puts G-Shock in the corner. When we talk about materials, though, I know I've also heard some exotic case designs being, some exotic case materials being kicked around. Right. There was, of course, the Dream Watch. The Dream Project. The, the most exotic one. The, the Gold Watch. And This there, thing was insane. There is talk of a watch that is entirely sapphire crystal someday. Yep, yep. yep. And you, we handled, we, you got to deliver yeah, one of Yeah, we did deliver one of the Gold Watches. One of the Gold Watches. Remember, remember what it came in? Yeah, it was one of the most impressive boxes of, of it all came, time. It came in a, a shipping crate, which had a box in it, which had a G-Shock box in it, which had a tea Japanese kettle? tea kettle made yeah. of iron. It was, it was yeah. a traditional iron tea kettle, yeah. which right. had its own little box. I mean, it was this whole like Matryoshka doll, basically. Yeah. You started out literally like we had a pry bar. <laughs> yeah. The outside, it looked like something like the Ark of the Covenant uh-huh. would have the been kept in and Raiders like of the Lost of gold. I don't think you really would in the same way I did. That... <laughs> that box when it came in got left in my office and when i watched it i like stubbed my toe in this giant crate like three yeah. times. it was on a pallet yeah i think it was 70 or 80 thousand dollars it was, in, it was, it was, it was an expensive it was a, piece it was an expensive watch it's a solid unusual. chunk of gold but rob you said it best it was art piece it was mm-hmm. a statement it was the fact it's that that watch art. It was pop art. Was subjected to the same litany of tests that any one of these steel, titanium, or resin watches and survived. They can't put G-Shock on the tin unless it goes through all of the same testing parameters. Mm-hmm. So that was solid and, gold. And I mean, by the way, the reason why it was called the Dream Watch, you know why? I don't. It was because Kiko eBay always want, thought that his watches were the toughest things ever, and he wanted to make a incredible luxury version of everything he loved. That's awesome. I would love to see that at Sapphire. Holy and cow. can I get a lore check on aisle five? I, hopefully that's true, Russ. <laughs> he said it was true. <laughs> you know, it came it's from the man true. himself. It's not I, true. It's a good story, so who cares? I just remember the promo the promo video <laughs> for it. it. They showed the gold watch yeah. getting tested, like dropped and smacked yeah. with the hammer, just beat to all hell. Yeah. And uh, you know, people lost their minds. Like, yeah. This is a gold, you know, it was, it was amazing. It, yeah, it, it definitely... Something moment. that could have been an invitate. It was like a piece of, you know, performance art. It's exactly what it Modern was. art. Blurring the edges yeah. of, I, of luxury, consumerism, and it just was a statement piece. Yeah, um, I love that. I love brands that have not just the know-how, but the, the gumption to put together something like that as well. So, again, November 11th, right here at Topper Jewelers. You will be able to meet Mr. eBay. You can ask him any of these questions that we've asked here. We're hoping to have a chat with him as well, so we're going to cross all of our fingers and toes about that respectively. If you have questions for Mr. eBay that you would like us to ask him during the interview that we hope to conduct, absolutely shoot us a note. Is there a tattoo offer still stand? Oh, it absolutely should. I Listener, I think we're going to bring in a tattoo artist if you want to have G-Shock word marks or signage put on your body in perpetuity. Yeah, people <laughs> will take that literally, <laughs> Zach. Yeah, we should probably be careful about that. Yeah, There is a story going He's around kidding. that people had him sign body parts at an event and then they came back later at said event with the signage permanently tattooed on their person 
So I have amazing love. news. My porter just woke up. <laughs> Hello, friend. <laughs> right so to listener, specific we're at time. 59 minutes and 48 seconds is how long it took <laughs> to get to that. Goodness gracious. Put that in the show notes, please. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, we're going to put the timestamp in there. Uh, about an hour to, to juice back up. Again, questions for Mr. eBay. If you're not going to be able to join us at November 11th here at Topper Jewelers, you can email us, podcast at topperjewelers.com. We will do our best to answer or to have those questions posed to Mr. eBay during our conversation. But again, November 11th, it's going to be amazing. You can RSVP and we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. So it should be a very good time. Everybody's already talking about it. Uh, that event will fill up. By the time you hear this, you're going to want to move quickly. So, fellas, amazing to talk G-Shock and excited. We've got some basketball to watch, I think. Rob, do we have our opening yeah, so yeah, yes. Uh, so as we talked about in the last <laughs> podcast, I am Extreme. Russ's Giants are not in the pennant race this year. Yeah. So sorry, no, you get to... my, my Giants <laughs> made me happy. They hired a new manager. They made me happy. Yeah, R- Russ. Lo- R- remember, happy. you know, we recorded a part talking about Russ's little league career that somehow we never quite found a place for. But when he was eleven, funny, <laughs> funny he, enough, when he was we, somehow on the oh, ed, on the editor floor, there's like a nine minutes about Russ's little league career. But suffice yeah. to say, when That's he was true. eleven years old, he was like an all star league MVP catcher. <laughs> but he was a lefty, which and he got to the next level of baseball, and they're like, "Hit the outfield, kid! Yep. <laughs> you're you're a lefty." So anyway. Russ has a soft spot for wise catchers, and the Giants just hired Bob Melvin as manager. Yep. He was a, a former catcher. And from the Bay Area. And from the Bay Area. And yeah. a former Giant. Is That's a, true. He's a righty, though, right? Righty? Must be. As right. is the case with all major league catchers, really. Yeah. I learned on this when, you know, the, the, no one will hear this segment <laughs> <laughs> at this point, but you apparently can't throw out a runner who's... Stealing second if you have left hand. Oh, no, you can. This is a case where the, uh, the, the, the ball, ball ends up with strange tailspin. It has a tendency to tail away. And there the are play. much more right-handed hitters than left-handed hitters. Yeah, so you right. have to deal with getting it. So the right-handed batter, you don't hit the batter. It's a smaller angle window. Lots of reasons. Yeah, it's a feature, though, not a bug. But Russ said that despite all of the difficulties, he could have been a pioneering 12-year-old <laughs> positive left-handed catcher. And we'll never know. We will never know, but Russ is still a southpaw. He wears a G-Shock on his but, right wrist. But back to basketball. <laughs> back to basketball. As, as we talked about in the last pod, Take us um, home, Rob. due to my son's love of Jordan Poole, I am embracing the Wizards this season in addition oh. to the Warriors. And yeah. we got to see the home op- well, the home opener of the Warriors and the away opener of the Wizards. And I will give you How'd a... that go for you? Yeah, I'll give you a report. The Warriors with Chris Paul didn't win their first game against the Suns, but... They continue to play a beautiful style of basketball. Lots of rotations on defense, lots of ball movement, shot makers of the highest level, great individual defenders. So the Warriors look as you would think they would. And last time we talked about the Wizards, you said that by the time we talked about them next, they should be 0-3 or something. Yes, and then well, they've right only on schedule. had, they, that's right, they've only had one game. Okay. Against Indiana, who's projected to be, I don't know, maybe the ninth or tenth best team in the East. Okay. Um, they lost by 23 points. <laughs> and with about nine minutes left, all, both teams had pulled their starters. If the Warriors are the are filet mignon, uh, we have to come up with a food analogy of what it's like watching the Wizards. But it is a true test of fandom because even they are yet to 
really excel in offense or defense or transition they are at the beginning that's basketball right there <laughs> they're <laughs> at the be- they're at the beginning of a complete rebuild and yeah. uh when when do the warriors and the wizards meet they, this year they meet on december 22nd oh nice and i believe we'll, in golden state or in at, at, golden, state, at golden state and they state. play um in, in, i think in the early winter in, in dc and i will be going to that game so the question sure. is this do you wear wizards gear mm-hmm. golden state gear or golden state gear with jordan Poole's name on the back <laughs> Nice. Uh, yes, yes what, all, what, all one, one, one of those for sure. <laughs> one of those for sure. That, that'll be a game time decision for, for uh, John. Well, listener, I promise you this is not a sports podcast, but it's always fun to, to talk shop with you guys. And remember, every time we mention the Wizards, we are the fourth most popular <laughs> Wizards podcast. And the, every time we mention the Warriors, we're number 280 Warriors podcast. There's apparently a lot of Bay Area podcasters yeah. uh, in the Golden State fandom. Locked on Wizards is the gold standard of Wizards podcasts. If you want to learn more about Locked on Wizards, if you want to learn more about rebuilding Wizards, listener Russ is shaking his head. (laughs) (laughs) All right, boys, let's put a bow on this one. Listener, thank you again, as always, for joining us at Burlingame and Park. Uh, If you have questions for the podcast, we can read them over air podcast at topperjewelers.com. Always love seeing the uh, the reviews, comments, all of that. It's been amazing. I promise we'll keep things to watches despite Rob's best efforts to steer us away to Wizards and Warrior fandom. But it's always fun to hear about Rob. <laughs> Russ, thank you again for joining us. Rob, thank you again for joining us, fellas. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. Cheers. 